Beloved congregation of the Lord, will you turn with me again to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1, and read again in verses 8 and 9. Whom having not seen, ye love, in whom though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Well, children, maybe you remember that seven days after Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared in a special way to his disciples. He appeared to his disciples when they were hiding there from the Jews that were seeking to arrest them and all the doors were locked. But then Jesus appeared to them and and he stood in the midst of them and he said, peace be unto you. It was such a happy thing for those disciples, but there was one disciple who wasn't there with them. Do you remember who that disciple was? It was, it was Thomas. Thomas was, was not there. And so his, his friends, they went to Thomas and tried to tell him what they had seen. But Thomas, well, he didn't believe them. Instead, What he said was that he would not believe that Jesus had risen from the dead unless he could put his finger in the holes in his hands and his side. He wouldn't believe it unless he could touch Jesus with his hands. Well, seven days after that, rather eight days after that, I should say, there was Thomas with the disciples again. And then Jesus appeared to them again as he had before. And he said, peace be unto you. And he said, especially to that doubting Thomas, here are the holes in my hand and my side. Touch them and and prove for yourself that I am who I say I am. Well, Thomas, he saw what a fool he had been. He said, my Lord and my God. It's a wonderful story about Jesus' love for that doubting uh, Christian. But it's very important what he says next. What Jesus said next to Thomas is something that concerns every one of us. He said in John chapter 20, verse 29, where that story is recorded, Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. So Jesus here says, There is a special blessing for those who have faith in Jesus Christ but have never seen him, never laid eyes upon him, and never seen what his facial expression looks like, never seen the color of his eyes, never heard audibly the sound of his voice. There's a blessing for those who yet place their trust in him. That is the condition in which the audience that Peter was writing found themselves. 
He says in verse 8, he is writing to those who can say of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love. In whom though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. I think there's something about uh, our, our hearts that wants to see Jesus physically. I think there's a reason why so many are tempted without any warrant from the Bible to draw pictures of what they imagined Jesus would have looked like. And, and that's very dangerous. It directs our hearts and stirs our affections to something that's, that's really man-created. But the true thing that matters, the true thing, is the faith that is spoken of here. A faith that comes to sinners by the preaching of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit. The faith that comes to those who've never laid eyes upon Jesus in these days and yet trusts in him all the same. That is, those whom Jesus says are particularly blessed, those who believe upon him. And indeed, it is a great blessing to know the Lord Jesus Christ. True Christianity, you see, is not at all about just going to church. It is not about obeying a set of rules or following traditions. Christianity is about a person. It is about he who is the savior of sinners, the son of God come in our flesh, who suffered and died on Calvary's cross and redeems us from the power of sin and the condemnation of hell. What really matters in this life is knowing him by a true faith. And this true faith, it is never alone. Yes, it is faith alone, In Christ alone which saves, but the faith which really looks to Christ, it is never alone. There are always these companions in the heart and soul of one who has this living faith, as we see in this text which we examine. In the first place, you see how it speaks of those who've not seen him, yet love him, whom having not seen, Ye love. That is what I would wish to direct our attention to in this morning service, considering the remainder of our text in the afternoon. We will consider, with the Lord's help, the believer's love for Jesus Christ. The believer's love for Jesus Christ. And in order to really understand the importance of this grace in the heart of true believers, I wish to first note its absence and then compare that with its presence. What it is to be without true love for Jesus and then what it is to have true love for Jesus. Where we consider these words where the apostle writes about these Christians, these 
Christians who were scattered throughout uh, Asia Minor, what's called modern-day Turkey, having fled from their homes under persecution, having been scattered throughout all of these alien territories, feeling separated and strange from all of their surroundings, the one marker that united them all together was their identification with Christ, their confession of his name, and their delight in him. The thing that shone forth as the apostle considered whom he was writing to was that though they had never had the privilege that he had had, as one who had walked the dusty roads of Galilee with him, as one who had seen him cast out devils, one who had seen him rise from the dead and, and show forth the hands in his, his, in his, the holes in his hands and, and in his side, they had never experienced that. They had submitted to the preaching of the word. They had heard about this one who had risen from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father and sent forth all of these messengers of witnesses. And having received that glorious message, it had transformed them. They had been willing to surrender all for the sake of this name that was above every name. And so he commends them for it and notes this, whom having not seen, he love. And obviously that would have made them a stark, um, a starkly strange people in the times and in the place in which they lived. They were a minority, a remnant, a tiny fringe group of people amidst a great mass who cared nothing for the Lord Jesus, who did not love him in the least. So it was in those days, and so it is today. The terrible thing to contemplate is that though this one, the Lord Jesus Christ, is infinitely worthy of love, the great mass of people in the world have no love for him whatsoever. And of course, This is certainly the case with those who've never heard about Jesus Christ. You take those lands that are still covered in such thick spiritual darkness, they've never once heard his name. Or even in places that are corrupted with false religions, such such as Islam or Roman Catholicism or or, Islam. Christ-hating Judaism and these sort of religions. Still there, there is such a dim view of Christ that whatever they know of him is, is surely so far from reality. In our own land here in Canada, where there is only a vesture and a remnant of religious knowledge amongst the great number of people, there is certainly no knowledge or rather, no love of him. One who you do not know, you can certainly not love. And in one sense, God does not hold us accountable to know and love Jesus Christ if we've never heard the gospel at all. But it's far different with those in the visible professing church. For those who have heard the gospel, had it revealed unto them, had it set before them, 
then God requires of them faith and love in Jesus Christ. And yet, the Bible teaches us that even among the professing people of God, if we would take what is called Christianity and all of its various expressions, those who claim to be Bible-believing churches, we are to fear that there is very little true love for Jesus Christ. And it's in many ways in fulfillment to what the prophet Isaiah said. The prophet Isaiah prophesied of the days when Jesus would come among his own people, the, the Jewish church of his own day. And he said in Isaiah chapter 53 in verse 2, He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Well, there you have it. There is this one who was the suffering servant of the Lord, the one in whom the hope of the ages rested, the one who was the very brightness of his Father's glory according to his deity and according to his humanity, was spotless and undefiled, completely without sin, so full of love and grace and truth, and yet despised and rejected in even the days of his own ministry. And why was that? Why was it that he was despised and rejected so? Well, the Lord Jesus explained it very straightly in the third chapter of John's Gospel in the 20th verse, where he said, For every one that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest their deeds be reproved. This was the case in the days of Jesus' earthly ministry. And it is still the case where Jesus is held forth through the preaching of the word amidst the visible church. There are those who despise Jesus Christ. Whatever they may think of religious duties, whatever they may think of religious community, or religious activities, where it really comes down to it, there is no love for him, no true acquaintance with him, no desire for him that they should come unto him. And why is this? Well, because their deeds were evil. Their deeds were evil. They will not come into the light. They prefer the darkness where they can be hidden. So it is with you, my friend, today. If you are not converted unto Christ, if you see nothing in him that is to be desired, do not dare for a moment say that it has anything to do with any defect in him. Do not say there is nothing in him to be desired. Do not say that he has not met you in your needs. No, confess this. Confess this. It is your love of your sin of your pride, of your self-righteousness, of your living apart from God and of salvation. This owes entirely to this. You love what is dark and you will not come unto the light. And of course, this is the condition 
of every one of us by nature. Every one of us hides from the, the Christ of the scriptures. We flee from him. For as he comes unto us, even with his overtures of grace, yet this very Christ exposes our sin, exposes how we have lived in deceit, in perversion, in pride, and in filthiness. And in so doing, he causes us to shrink back into our own thoughts, into our own desires, and away from him. And I would reflect upon this as well. For those who have this absence of love for Christ, some of the most terrible warnings in all of Scripture are held forth. We read there in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 22, If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. That is, let him be accursed. The curse and wrath of God in a special and particular way rests upon those who despise the Lord Jesus Christ and do not love him. There is no third option here. If you are not a lover of Jesus Christ, then you are hated by God. If you are not one who delights in Jesus Christ, then God takes no delight in you. For the one who is separated from the true love of Christ, they are separated from anything of true favor from the very King of heaven. For the one who does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, their future is one of darkness, of judgment, and of torture under the undiminished wrath of God for eternity. That is the terrible reality. It says in Proverbs chapter 8, verse 36, But he who sins against me wrongs his own soul. All those who hate me love death. And if you'll read that 8th chapter of Proverbs closely, you'll see that it is the person of wisdom speaking. It is even the very Son of God speaking. And he holds this forth before us. All those who hate me, love death. Can you imagine what it would be to love death, to love your own destruction, to love what brings misery and suffering and alienation from God? Well, there it is. That is the condition of those who do not love the Lord Jesus Christ. By despising him, they are despising all that would bring them true joy and forgiveness and mercy. They are despising their very lives. And let us not forget the one whom these people refuse to love. He says in John chapter 8 verse 48, Jesus said unto them, that is those who are rejecting his word, If God were your father, ye would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Here is one who's proceeded forth from eternity, the only begotten of the Father. Here is the one who came in our flesh, who took the form of a servant, who suffered even Calvary's cross for sinners. Here is the one who came on the mission of salvation to seek and to save that which is lost. This is the one. This is the one that those without 
love for him are content to be without. Oh, we hear about these terrible things, about what it is to be without the love of Christ. It's true of non-Christians, it's true of false Christians. But when I hear these things, I also have to say that there is such little love for Christ when I examine my own heart. How much every Christian must come to see. We love him so little compared to what he deserves. Any Christian who is acquainted with their true weakness and frailty will hear these things and say, Guilty, Lord, not Not only true of others, not even only true of the unbelievers, but even myself, one who does does say that I can look to none other but you for salvation. Even I who have fled unto you for mercy and cling unto you for mercy and faith, yet I as well have such little love for you compared to what I should. It falls so pitifully short. I say that the right way to understand the preciousness of this grace is to begin by looking at its absence. But I also want to especially give some attention to its presence. What does this look like in the heart of one who has a true love for Christ? Yes, we can all say, if we have any love for him at all, it falls short in every respect. It is, it is not what it should be. It is not like Christ's love for his people, which is coming forth from eternity, pure, strong, steadfast, un, unwavering, unchanging. No, our love, it is flickering and it is feeble and it is inconsistent. And yet, when we would look at it, when we would would rightly examine what this looks like in the heart of a Christian, ought we not to say it is a very precious thing indeed, something that we ought to thank the Lord for and, and ought to strive by his grace to nurture and grow. Well, let's consider something of, of this. It's presence in the Christian. I think the way I'll break this down is to explain how this would work in the life of a couple who are falling in love, a man and a woman who have come to a place in life where they are drawn to one another and the, the, that love for one another is being nurtured and, and growing such that it will, it will grow into a marriage union. What is that, that true love between a man and a woman which we can say in a way reflects the the love which the bride of Christ, the, the spiritual body of all true believers, what we have for our heavenly bridegroom and king. What is that love? Well, take that. You have a man and a woman. And what is the thing that would characterize their their love, their bond? towards one another well in the first place you ought to say there is a desire there there is a wholesome desire of a man for a woman and a woman for a man to be expressed lawfully in that marriage union ultimately what is that desire well it is a desire to be with that one and a man falls in love with, with a woman, there, there's, there's a missing of, of her. 
There's a feeling of sadness when she's absent and a, a feeling of joy and, and, and happiness when she is present. Likewise, of a woman for a man. Surely those of you who've known love, you know this. That desire, desire for the other. Well, there is something of this also in an infinitely greater way for the Christian who has come to love his Savior or her Savior. It says in Psalm 73, verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none above earth that I desire beside thee. Here's the first thing. Love is a desire. A desire for the one whom you love. A wholesome and a holy thing to be to know them, to be in their presence, to have them as your own. That is the love that the Christian has for the Savior. And it's set forth in, in a remarkable way in a couple of scripture passages as a thirst, as a as a yearning that is that is unquenchable until it is satisfied with the one whom we love. Psalm forty two, verses one and two, as the heart or the, the deer panteth after the water brook, so panteth my soul after thee. O God, my soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Psalm 143, verses 6 and 8. I stretch forth my hands unto thee. My soul thirsteth after thee as a thirsty land. Hear me speedily, O Lord. My spirit faileth. Hide not thy face from me lest I be like unto them that go down into the pit. Cause me to hear thy loving kindness in the morning, for in thee do I trust. Cause me to know the way that I should walk, for I lift up my soul unto thee. You see, it's very different in coming to a church service for a true believer than an unbeliever. Yes, a non-believer, they may come to church just out of, out of routine, just out of, out of tradition. But when it's well with you, believer, when it's well with you, Christian, if you would really dig down deep, isn't this it? I want to see him. It's been too long since I caught a glimpse of his glory. It's been too long since I was satisfied with the words that stirred me looking unto him who is my Lord and my God, looking unto him who is the author and the finisher of my faith, looking unto Jesus, there alone can I be satisfied. I desire him. I desire to know him more. I desire to be in his presence. That is why I come to church. This is why I listen to the word. This is why I pray. This is why, why I live and draw breath. It is to be close to him. There must be this. And put it this way as well. Isn't it especially acute when the Christian really faces the prospect of his or her death? You know, for, for someone who is without any hope, 
If you would hear today that you have only six hours to live, then then this would, would fill you with terror if you were not a Christian. You would say, I'm losing everything. Everything that this world has to offer, it's lost. All the future that I had before me, it's all lost. All the plans that I had are dashed to pieces. Not so with the Christian. Yes, there is that sorrow. Yes, there is Perhaps that regret, but most, most fundamentally there is that at the core of the person which longs to be with the Savior, which desires to be in his presence in perfection. Such the apostle writes of in Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4, For we that are clothed in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened. Not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. In verse 8, we are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Yes, that is what fills the heart of the Christian. Desire for Christ. That is what true love is. But note this as well, not only desire, but also delight. And even as I was trying to prepare this message, I was struck by it's hard to separate these things exactly, even thinking about them or talking about them. But we have to at least try in order to set forth the manifold uh, nature of this. Yes, there's a desire for the one whom you love. But surely if you've ever known love, it isn't simply that you desire to be with them. It's not just the desire, but it's also the satisfaction and the delight to be with uh, that person. Indeed, if you want to keep the D's to keep it easy to remember, there's desire, but also delight. And it's described in a number of passages of Scripture that when we are in the presence of Christ, when we do see a sight of Him, when we do see something of His mercies toward us, then it doesn't just leave us unmoved or cold, but there is a stirring of the heart, delighting in Him. It says in Psalm chapter 16 and verse 11, Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 37 and verse 4. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thy heart. Psalm 89 and verse 6. For who in the heaven can be compared unto the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened unto the Lord? You see a lot of these passages that would speak of this delighting in God. It's, it's almost like the view of self and the view of who we are. It vanishes into the background and we're all caught up with who he is. We think of Jesus Christ. We think of our Lord, whether according to his deity, according to his humanity, according to his offices, our prophet, priest, and king, according to his amazing love towards us. And, and it's like we can't look away. Everything becomes about that. You know, sometimes this can be what is especially helpful to the Christian struggling with assurance. 
If you would actually say, yes, I have faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, I know for sure I'm a believer. You, you may have difficulty with that. You may not. You may say, I don't know if I can say that of myself. I distrust myself too much. But let me ask you this. Dare you say that you have no love for him? Our Puritan fathers would sometimes note this, that even among the weakest believers who would doubt their own faith, they found it difficult to say that there was nothing in him to be desired, nothing in him to be delighted in. Have you never found, dear one, that you have been caught up in heavenly places with him? Have you never found that with him there is so many treasures not to be compared with the pleasures of this world? Have you ever found that whatever the, ever the world may ask of you, you could never bear to be parted from him? And I say, just as with the desire, you could say this also comes out in worship, for indeed many of the passages that speak about this are drawn out in, in the worship passages of the Psalms. You say in Psalm 43 and verse 4, Then will I go unto the altar of the Lord, unto God my exceeding joy. Yea, upon the harp I will praise thee, O God, my God. uh, Psalm 63, verse 3. Because of thy loving kindness is better than life. My lips shall praise thee. Has it ever been for you, believer, that when you sing those psalms, you are so caught up in those words about Christ, setting forth his manifold perfections as our covenant Lord and God, that indeed your heart bursts with joy and gladness just to be one who can praise him among his people, just to be one who can praise him in your own prayer closet in your own family life, just to be a Christian, praising the Lord. Is there anything to be compared with that? To bring a little glory unto his name, to sing unto him of his greatness and of his glory, of his salvation. That is the delight of which we speak. Love, I say, is a delighting in the Savior, God. Is it any wonder that the Apostle writes in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Everything he says, whatever... My life before Christ may have been, I count it dung. I count it something filthy and vile compared to the knowledge of Christ. I delight in him so, I love him so, I treasure him so that it must be that everything else is not worthy to be compared with him. So it is. There is that as well. But closely connected With that as well, we must say there's not only delight, sorry, not only desire and delight, but also devotion. And it's already been seeping through in some of the things I've been saying, but but ultimately it must be the case, mustn't it? Just as with a, a man and a woman, 
who are falling in love, who ultimately are brought together in that bond of love in true holy marriage, having that special love for the other, it means excluding all other competitors. Yes, there's a way in which you love everyone as your neighbor or whatever it may be, but love that a husband and a wife have for one another, it is something that on the human level, nothing can be really compared to. But there is this, which is even the greater, and that is the bond of love which the believer has with Christ, which, unlike our love for our spouse, it it requires us to love him with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. Our love for everyone and everything else, it must never rise to the level that we have for Christ. This devotion, this devotion must be the highest devotion of our lives. Jesus himself said in Matthew 10, verse 37, He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. A hard saying when you consider how much we love our mother or our father or our son or our daughter or our wife or our friend. Indeed, these these are things that we must do. We must love our families. We must treasure them. But let me tell you this. If there is not a love that is greater than that, if there is not a love that rises higher than all competitors, if he is not the center of your universe, then is he anything to you at all? This love must be first, or it is nothing at all. The love for Christ. If you do not love him before all else, Jesus says you are not worthy of him. You cannot uh, be counted among his disciples. Is it any wonder that the apostle writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, whether therefore ye eat or drink, or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. And we could say as well, to the glory of the Son of God, who is God, Jesus Christ. Everything in life must be bound up with this, the glory of God in Christ. He must be our all. He must be our everything. Psalm 145, verses 1 and 2. I will extol thee, O my God, O King. I will bless thy name forever and ever. Every day will I bless thee. I will praise thy name forever and ever. And this is known, of course, by those only who have fled unto him as he is held forth in the gospel. Those who know Him as he is a dying, crucified Savior for sinners. Thus we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 to 15, for the love of Christ, that is the love of Christ for sinners, constraineth us. It binds us up. It holds us captive because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, 
that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. As the sinner lays hold of Christ in the gospel, fleeing unto him in faith, that same sinner is constrained by the love of Christ towards him or her such that he can no longer live merely for himself. He must live for Christ. For him or her, it can be said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And it is because, as we see in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, we love him because he first loved us. This is not something that just distinguishes those who are particularly loving people from those who are less loving people. No, each one of us has gone astray, but the Lord has laid on him the sins of his people. And where he has... uh, suffered in the place of his people, he also pursued his people and gave them his spirit of love in order that they would find him. Thus we see in Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 3, the Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore with loving kindness have I drawn thee. It is all of Christ's love for us. Everything that we possess in the way of grace, and not least of all, this love that we have for him. And again, I think this compounds the problem, isn't it? How can we ever love Christ as he is owed? We look at our love and we always fall short of of what we ought to. And how is it that we can grow in these things? I just have this one thought that I would I would leave you with, and it's from a very well-known portion of Scripture, and you know it well, I'm certain. There is that occasion in which Jesus was invited to the home of a Pharisee by the name of Simon, who was somewhat interested in his teaching. And so he invites him over, and he's having him over for a meal. And, and there, as he's uh, having this meal with Jesus, suddenly a woman, a woman comes into the house, very frowned upon in that culture. What was more frowned upon, she actually came before Jesus. She let down her hair. She opened some precious perfume and she poured it forth upon him. And then she kneeled down and began to dry his feet with her tears as she was there weeping and kissing his feet. And everyone was sort of freaked out at this, very weirded out. And, and Simon, he sort of looked at, at this whole situation and shook his head, that Pharisee, and said, well, surely if this man knew that this woman was a sinner, she wouldn't, he wouldn't allow her to do this to her. And well, Jesus, he gave a very interesting parable to this Simon. He said, Simon, imagine you had these two cases. You had one, uh, you had these two people who owed someone a great sum of money. One owed them 150 shekels and the other merely five. And they both owe him this money. And, and the Lord forgives them both. But, but which one do you imagine will love him the more? And this Simon, he just sort of, you know, I guess sat back and crossed his arms and, and rolled his eyes and said, well, I suppose... It was the one who was forgiven the more. And 
Jesus said, you have spoken truly. Because, you see, he who is forgiven much loves much. And he who is forgiven little loves little. And what was he saying there? Was he saying that this Pharisee had less sin against the Lord God than this woman? Was he saying that this man knew forgiveness at all? No, he was rather saying this. That this woman, because she was acquainted with her sin and she was overwhelmed with the magnitude of him, where she found Christ, she was overwhelmed with a proportionate love for him. And she says, he says to that woman, woman, go your way. Your faith has saved you, not your love, but your faith. Indeed, congregation, we should take something from this. It's not by just flagging ourselves and saying how miserable we are, that we do not love Christ enough, that we can truly love him. No, it is by being as we are, needy sinners before him, fleeing unto him in faith and becoming more acquainted with the great salvation salvation he has given, that our love for him will 